It is a random rotation of the elders who are chosen to read the passage on Sunday. But in the providence of God, it seems that Rob Stouffer always gets genealogies and names, right? The Lord has a lesson for him. He's trying to teach him. I don't know what it is, but... Being a pastor, I do enjoy reading. I have a number of books in my library. I tend to collect those things. I'm maybe hoarding quite a few of them too. Books are, they, they're kind of like friends to me when I'm studying a book of the Bible. I have a set of commentaries beside me and, and I engage those commentaries and think through them with the author and sometimes those friends are saying things I haven't heard before and I have to think through and wrestle with. And uh, sometimes I find myself shaking my head saying, nope, I don't think so. I think you got that one wrong. Or uh, man, that's the best way I've ever seen that put out there. But have you ever noticed with books that you're reading, especially Christian books that you think have informed your soul, um, they are kind of like friends. You, you develop this, engage, especially if it's a good book that's really caught you, you're engaging with it. I've never yet found one of these friends that I've agreed with on everything. And I'm often asked the question, do you have a book you could recommend on whatever subject? And immediately several will come to mind or maybe I'll go into my library and look for some of those and I, I have to start thinking, yes, here's one and there's always this caveat but. Have you noticed that? Uh, I, I guess no author is as good as I am yet, right? Is that what we're normally thinking? <laughs> or maybe I'm just not where they are yet. But it always seems that there's always some kind of caveat with every, every book. Yes, but you need to watch out for. Yes, but you need to think about. Or yes, but, but, but pay close attention to. Think of that on an even larger scale. When we think about as a congregation, the kinds of people outside of our ministry that we're going to not just personally partner with as a church, but maybe even recommend that others would partner with, with us. As a congregation, we might look at the vast array of opportunities that are out there for us to, to partner in ministry that goes wide, widely beyond us and far beyond what we could accomplish, like missionaries or Christian colleges or seminaries. We're not doing all of that work here. And so we have a variety of ministry partners, and, and we probably look at many of those ministry partners and, and we evaluate and say, yes, but you might want to watch for this. Or you might want to think about this or be careful with. Every week, every week I'm being asked by a variety of people outside of our congregation and some within our congregation to partner with certain ministries outside of ourselves. And it is a constant quandary and challenge for the elders, I think, to determine how are we going to partner with people beyond ourselves because every church has partners they work with to accomplish ministry objectives we all do we we partner with people who are preaching the gospel today in other parts of the world central asia south asia particularly for us we even have members of our church who are serving in south asia as we speak 
We partner with unique ministries in the metro area. Elias Coffee House in Northeast Kansas City, uh, an outreach using their their coffee house as an outreach into a very needy part of our city. Collegiate Impact, establishing gospel outreaches in areas of college campuses in the area around us. We partner with the Southern Baptist Convention and with the Missouri Baptist Convention, joining other churches to collectively accomplish ministry objectives we couldn't do on our own, supporting over six seminaries, colleges within our state, Christian colleges, church planting efforts throughout our country, mission ministries across the world. We actually partner with groups like Expositors Seminary, the Master's Seminary, Calvary University, where we have several graduates, current students. We even have employees at some of these institutions and board members. We are always receiving requests to partner in ministry with others. And how do you choose? How do you think through who we're going to partner with and who we're not going to partner with? Does every organization that we partner with have to teach the Bible in every detail the way our church teaches the Bible in every detail? And if not, how do you determine where there is doctrinal latitude and where there is not? Does every emphasis that every one of our members participates in every emphasis that any individual member participates in, does that deserve full-fledged public support by the congregation as a whole? How are we going to choose with whom we are going to partner? I think our passage this morning helps us think through that very question. It helps us to answer that question. And again, Like every sermon and every single text, this is not everything that we could say about it, but I think this is a good grid. These are good guidelines that we're going to be able to look look at and say, let's start here. What are the, the corners of this puzzle that we can begin to put together? What are the criteria? What are the guidelines that we could follow that help us to know who we're going to partner with and who we're not going to partner with? It's always a challenge. It's always going to be difficult for us to make those decisions. The elders are charged with a lot of responsibility in making a number of those decisions. The congregation will have great responsibility in affirming many of those decisions. How do we know? How do we determine? Well, this morning we finish up a book that began with the aim of focusing a group of churches on the island of Crete with a gospel-centered mindset about how to do ministry. Throughout the book, we've been seeing that it is our salvation that should define our life. Our salvation should define our life. The gospel is the center point from which we make decisions about all of life. It's how we determine how we're going to live, what our character should look like, what we're going to emphasize, what we don't emphasize. Even in this last area, with whom are we going to partner? We saw in the beginning, leaders have to govern their lives by the gospel so that the church is kept on the course of the gospel. That was chapter one. Members need to display the collective life of the church through the message of the gospel. It should drive the way we live, the character of our lives, so we display the salvation of Christ. We're even to be citizens, that was chapter three, citizens who will 
publicize the collective message of the church, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And even last week, we started talking about with whom are we going to enjoin ourselves in fellowship, not just partnership beyond ourselves, but fellowship and the, the partnership of ministry affection. That's the latter part of chapter three. And the way Paul concludes this letter adds another additional gospel-centered exclamation point to what he has said basically in every other section. And when we read through these verses, as Rob did, they, they're just a normal way to end a letter. It's personal. It summarizes many of the main themes throughout the letter. It provides final instructions from the author. It's a short greeting to others. It's a prayerful ending. It's a normal way you're going to see many letters in the Bible end. But did you notice as you were reading through the difficult names here, there is a focus around particular people with whom Paul actually partners in ministry and with whom the churches in Crete are supposed to partner in ministry. Those whom Paul will send to the island of Crete and the church is to receive them as if they were ministry partners. That's Artemis and Tychicus. And even the very person that he wants to be by his side when he's spending the winter at another city. He's talking here in this passage about, uh, in this passage about those who are currently serving in other places. And he, they need to be sent off by the churches in Crete. Other churches on the island with whom there's going to be ongoing partnership are described here. People who comprise all of these churches. People serving with Paul outside of Crete and those who have served with Paul within Crete in the past. They're all described here. And it provides us what I think is a good set of borders within which we can think through gospel-centered ministry in terms of partnership. There's a lot of good options out there. No one church can do everything. We don't want to spread ourselves so thin that we're doing nothing deeply. So how do we choose with whom we're going to partner? Let's, let's look at this passage today and the people described here. And let's outline for ourselves at least four guidelines that would help us. Here's four guidelines from which to think through a gospel-centered partnership. This is going to be more significant than probably you think it is. Because you're going to have questions about this. Every church wrestles through it. How are we going to think through it ourselves? Four guidelines for gospel-centered partnerships. First, Partner with those who are devoted to gospel-centered local churches. Partner with those who are devoted to gospel-centered local churches. For this, we're going to focus on verse 12. And I can hear it in, in someone's voice. They're saying, ah, you're reading your own biases here. This is what you think should happen, you being a local church pastor. You'd love everybody to focus on just local churches. Do you have any particular in mind? Sure. But where do I get this idea in verse 12? 
When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. You say, Where, where's local church emphasis here? When I send who? Artemis and Tychicus. Now think through this with me. This letter is written to an apostolic representative named Titus. We learned that in chapter 1, verse 1. He is an apostolic representative, meaning he was sent to the churches on the island of Crete. He was ministering with Paul to those churches on the island of Crete, representing the apostolic authority of the apostle Paul. Paul left the island and kept Titus there, and the primary reason is that they weren't finished with the work of establishing these churches. Titus is there not to do his own thing. He is told by the Apostle Paul throughout the letter, this is what I want you to focus on because of my apostolic authority. He has a unique authority in the church as an apostle as he establishes new churches. And Titus is merely keeping Paul's ministry alive there continuing with the work of establishing what is absolutely necessary for these churches to thrive. They were to appoint elders in every church, chapter 1, verse 5. I mean, think about the authority that Titus had described in chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. On whose authority? Paul is telling him, you do this. Sound doctrine is what you emphasize. Even verse 15, chapter 2, these things speak, exhort, and reprove, what's the, the phrase, with all authority. How does he get that authority? Well, he's connected to the Apostle Paul who has apostolic authority. These are healthy teachings, good doctrine. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be subject. He has to charge them to be subject. Chapter 3, verse 8, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things. I want you to speak confidently. So he had a role and a responsibility to represent the doctrine that was apostolic doctrine and call the church to obey it. And now at the end of the letter, Paul is saying, Titus, you're done there. And I am sending two people to relieve you. I'm sending two men to relieve you of these responsibilities that you are laying down here in this church, but they still need oversight. It appears obvious that the two men mentioned here are going to assume the local church responsibilities of exhorting, instructing, focusing, developing ministry according to the gospel message of Jesus and the apostolic doctrine that's been laid out. Now who are these men? Artemis, who's mentioned first, this is the only time in the New Testament he has ever mentioned. We know very little of him outside of what we learn right here. But the fact that he's being sent by the Apostle Paul should bear some kind of authority with it. He serves alongside men like Tychicus and Apollos, men we do know a lot more about. And he's replacing Titus, who was very dear to the Apostle Paul. Paul would not likely send someone to replace Titus with whom he didn't have great confidence in what this man was going to do in these local churches. So he's a representative, Artemis is, of, again, of Paul's apostolic authority, being sent to serve churches and help them focus on being gospel-centered. 
Tychicus is the next name mentioned, and he's found five other times in the New Testament his name is mentioned. He served with Paul at least during the last of Paul's missionary journeys, and these journeys were primarily to churches previously established, and he went about strengthening those churches. He began some new ones with the Apostle Paul, but mostly a ministry of strengthening existing churches. He was with Paul in Greece. He traveled throughout the Mediterranean area for some time with Paul, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He's often associated, Tychicus is, with the churches in Ephesus and Colossae. Ephesus and Colossae were closely related churches. Uh, The two letters that we have in the New Testament almost parallel one another. And he's mentioned in each of them in Ephesians 6.21. We learn this about, about Tychicus. He says to the Ephesian church, so that you may know about my circumstances, how I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. Almost similar, similarly given in Colossians 4.7 is the same kind of words about Tychicus as to all my affairs, Colossians 4.7 As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. Meaning this, who knows about the details of Paul's life? Who knows about the details of Paul's circumstances? Who's so close to him and represents him so closely that he could dispatch this man to other places and other churches to say, this is what's going on in Paul's life and ministry? Tychicus, this man is very close to Paul represents him very close. He's marked by faithfulness to the Lord, a servanthood. It's interesting to note he's used by Paul to go to these other local churches most of the time while Paul is in prison. When Paul can't be other places, he sends this man to represent him. Even at the end of Paul's life, when Paul again at the very end of his life is in prison, And at that point, his life would end in martyrdom. He writes in 2 Timothy 4.12, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Perhaps he was sending Tychicus to Ephesus to replace Timothy, probably the closest associate of the Apostle Paul. I don't know that outside of Timothy and Titus, there might be anybody closer to the Apostle than this man Tychicus, just the way he's spoken of here. We know that Paul has left the island of Crete. It's an island south of Greece. He's now headed to the northwest shores of Greece because he says in verse 12, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to spend the winter there. Nicopolis was about 200 miles northwest of Athens on the western side of the Greek isthmus. It's possible that Paul was going to winter there in that city because he had a goal left. You know what that goal was? Where did he want to go toward the end of his life, the end of his ministry? He wanted to go to Spain. It's very possible that he was going to spend the winter there because you couldn't travel in in the seas during during the winter months. So he's going to winter there and he wants to prepare to launch out into an area that has not heard the gospel yet, Spain. Romans 16 tells us that was on his heart's mind and desire. Wintering in Nicopolis is likely planning time for Paul. Who does he want with him? Titus. Bring Titus. I want you here. Probably because Titus represents him. He's very close to him. He has ministry on his mind. 
Most of us, when we think about where we're going to travel and spend the winter, we're thinking vacation, relaxing, resting, getting away. I don't think that's Paul. Paul, in this very short time in which he's been released from prison, it's as if every minute counts for him. The clock is ticking. His life is almost at an end. He's going to get every ounce of ministry he can out of his life. Titus, meet me here in Nicopolis. I'm going to spend the winter there. And we've got ministry plans beyond. I don't know if we ever made it. We don't have any information. The next thing we know is that he's in a Roman prison and he's martyred. It says here in the text, I have decided. This is a very specific term. It means I judged. I have determined. I came to the conclusion. It's a stronger term than merely just saying, I want to go. I desire to go. No, I've been calculating this. I've been thinking this through, Paul says. And I have come to a a calculated decision that the next thing on the agenda for us in ministry is whatever might have been after Nicopolis, but Nicopolis is the launching point for it. I want you to think through this. What's easy to pass over in just a mere mention of these names in this single verse is how strategic Paul is in ministry. We knew what his ministry and his life was about. Romans 16 says he wanted to go to places where there was no gospel ever mentioned and start a gospel witness there. It's probably true in his mind at this point. He has left the island. He wants to see elders established. More oversight is needed, so he needs the right people on the island to keep doing the job and not let these churches slip, so they have to be devoted to these local churches. And he calls Titus, whom he had left there and dispatched there, to continue that initial work. I want you back with me because we've got new ministry plans, and those are likely ministry plans that are all about starting new churches. These men that he is working with, These men are devoted to ministry in the local church. It's all they are about. It's what they're known for. These are the men that Paul leans on, relies upon, feels so much confidence to dispatch to different places of great ministry need. Why? Their whole life is defined by ministry in the local church. This is significant to me as I read this at the end of a letter, especially in light of our our own day today. We are a Christian culture that lives in an age of the parachurch ministry. You know what I mean by the parachurch? Something other than the local church, a Christian ministry that might be focused on a specific niche. It might be focused on a particular need, but it's not the local church not governed by the local church, has its own board, has its own funding, uses local churches, of course, to to fund its programs and draw people from, but outside the church. And since Christianity has been so well established throughout the world today, we have a lot of parachurch ministries or ministries outside the church, many of which are always sending you letters asking for your support, especially in November and December, right? 
And there's a lot of benefit from those ministries and I've benefited from those ministries. Seminaries are parachurch ministries and there's a lot of value there. Christian colleges are parachurch ministries. There's a lot of value there. And they don't operate on just our goodwill. They need our help. They need our financing if we want to see those things accomplished. Missions agencies are parachurch. They're not just local churches sending people. They're agencies outside the local church. And and we need them and we rely upon them in many different ways. We live in an age of the parachurch. But God hasn't changed his mind. His focus, his emphasis in this age to complete the work of the kingdom that he has established is the local church. There is nothing else in the Bible ever called the bride of Christ other than the local church. Not parachurch ministries, they are not the bride of Christ. And to call one entity the bride of Christ, how important is that to the Lord? When the Bible says in Ephesians 5, he gave himself up for the church, how important is the church to Jesus? You say, oh, that means the global church. You have to read that definition in because every mention of the church in the New Testament emphasizes the local church virtually. Now when he died for the church, he died for Summit Woods Baptist Church and every other gospel preaching church, he died for them. That's how precious the church is. Now we've had a great ministry here, I think, of developing men who we're going to, Lord willing, one day send off or they're going to be men who serve here in this local church and we're putting a lot of effort into them being local church men who are devoted to the life of the local church. This is who we emphasize in ministry. When we think about partnering with people outside of our local church, the first question on my mind is, How do they prize the local church? How do they value, support, and centralize the local church? How are they trying to come alongside and and invest in the local church? Or are they just trying to draw away for themselves? Have you ever noticed some ministries will take from the local church and involve them so extensively in their parachurch ministries that those people have no time to give to their local church? But when you read not just these names, but there are a number of names throughout the New Testament when Paul starts listing the people that he's entrusting ministry to, they all seem to be local church kinds of people. Why is that? That's an emphasis. So when I think through a missions agency, a mission agency, an evangelistic ministry, a Bible teaching ministry, I'm asking, does their focus of attention happen to be the establishment of, the support of other local churches? How are they partnering with them? How do they centralize the local church, even showing deference to the local church? How's the local church directing these parachurch ministries? How's the local church the aim of these ministries? Are they devoted to it? I'm even asking those kinds of questions in relation to things like Christian radio or so-called Christian radio or so-called Christian TV, schools, colleges, 
ministries to unwed mothers, the homeless, the poor, etc. Even when we're training and developing men in our own congregation, are we really focused on them being men of the church? I mention that here because when you study the lives of these people that Paul mentions, they are radically focused on one thing, and that is building the local church. You have to ask yourself the question, are you, are you focused like that on building the life of the local church? When we as elders are thinking through ministry partners, we're saying, where do they see the local church within their ministry? Where, how important is that to the DNA of their ministry? We need to partner with those who are focused on gospel-centered local church ministry. That's what Paul emphasizes. Let's look at a, a second guideline. It's not the only one. I want to look at another guideline so that we can frame up our thinking, as it were, on how to know who we will partner with. Secondly, we should partner with those who emphasize gospel-centered service. So when we're thinking about those outside of us that we're going to utilize in ministry beyond us, we want to ask a second question. Are they people who emphasize gospel-centered service? Look at verse 13. Diligently help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. So verse 12 focused on sending missionaries to the island of Crete or taking people on the island and sending them out. This is purely focused on taking people who are there and sending them on to other places. Here's two other gospel partners being sent away from the churches on the island of Crete as they make their way to the next assignment, Zenos. We know nothing about Zenos outside what we learn here other than he is an attorney. Does that give you pause? No offense to our Christian attorneys in the room. We have a few here. It should give you hope. Attorneys can be Christians, right? <laughs> they can be. He's a lawyer, probably a secular expert in secular law. Uh, not likely a Jewish lawyer or a scribe, but probably an expert in secular law. But he's associated here with a man named Apollos, and that should be a name familiar to you if you've studied the New Testament, especially the life of Paul. Apollos is a familiar name in gospel ministry within the first century. He was a man known for his mightiness in the scriptures. He knew the Bible well. He had a very compelling articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24, we learned that he was a Jewish brother from Alexandria who spent time in Ephesus and Corinth. Early on, he had to be corrected a little bit in his doctrine because he didn't have a completed understanding of the Holy Spirit and, its connect and his connection to Jesus. And from what we learn, he became a very influential leader, especially in the churches in Corinth and other places like Ephesus. In fact, some people in Corinth were actually saying that they were people connected to Apollos. If you have followers in a church, they'd say, Apollos is our pastor. 
Not Paul, but Apollos. They're kind of pitting him against others. Not that Apollos ever wanted that. It's the way people used his name. But notice, this is at the end of Paul's life. And by this time, he's actually working in the same circles that Paul is. And we find that he's actually working with Paul and now Titus on the island of Crete. So what are they doing on the island of Crete? Well, they're helping Titus establish elders and make sure all of the, all of the saints are living gospel-centered lives and being gospel-centered citizens and having gospel-centered fellowship. That's what he's doing. He and Zenos together. And now it says, diligently help Zenos and Apollos on their way. Diligently help them on their way. That is a word that's actually used, or that phrase, diligently help them, is actually found a number of other times in the New Testament. And most of the time that you find it, it's financially help. Financially help them. Acts 15.3, the churches were helping Paul and Barnabas send them on their way to gospel work. Romans 15.24, 1 Corinthians 16.6, 2 Corinthians 1.16. Paul is asking for help to be on his way to other ministry endeavors, and he means financial help. 1 Corinthians 16.11, Timothy is to be financially helped on his way to the next assignment. 3 John 6 speaks of traveling leaders who need to be helped on to the next assignment. He's saying, take these men who have been in your midst and they have been investing themselves in the gospel work, the gospel service, help them financially go to the next place so that nothing is lacking for them, that every need that they have is met so that they're not distracted from the service that God has called them to do. That's the reason why you financially support someone is so that you value their ministry so much you don't want them to be distracted by the cares of the world and the needs of the world so they can give all of their time and attention to focus on what is most helpful for the ministry. That's why you support someone. You don't support someone just because they sent you an email and asked. And they did it again and again. I've got some really persistent folks that email me. And they're getting really clever I mean, I've never met this guy and he starts talking to me like we're long lost friends. In fact, I've I've got some who, they they know some of you and they say, because I know these people and I think they're really wonderful people, you should give me money. Even though I don't know anything about their service, I don't know anything about their ministry. Some parachurch organization. But these men are proven. They're known by these churches. Their service has been felt by all of these congregations here they're proven a primary focus for Titus before he leaves to go with Paul is to make sure that all of those churches help these two men who've been serving them so well be sent to another place to serve Our partnerships should be those that support those who are preaching the gospel, not just Christians who might be doing benevolent things. I think this is a great verse that reminds us to call out to those that God is calling to other places. Some of you in this room might be those that God is specifically calling to serve as pastors or missionaries in other places. And we're working hard as a congregation to discern who that might be and let the congregation experience not just their preaching ministry, but their life. 
That's why we have internships. It's what we're doing on Sunday evenings when we have men who are preaching here in this pulpit. And they're learning, they're developing, they're interacting with you, they're used in counseling, they're teaching classes here. They're investing in the body because these are the people that if you know them and you've experienced their gospel-centered service, you will be more likely to be willing and eager to support them when God calls them to the next place. And God is going to call them. We don't get to keep them all. Apollos, one of the strongest preachers in the New Testament, being sent somewhere else. Don't you think some would like to just keep him there in Crete? Wouldn't that be awesome? He's, he's good. Let's, why, do we, why does he have to go somewhere else? He's needed. The reality is none of us get to stay. I'm not staying here. You say, what? <laughs> I'm not staying here. Not forever. Right? I could die. That's what I'm thinking. I'm not thinking I'm going anywhere else, but I could die. <laughs> but the Lord could send us somewhere. Wouldn't be the first time. And people that we love here like Dalton or Dawson or Campbell and others, the Lord could say, we're slaves of Christ, right? See, but, but they've got such fruitful ministry among us, right? That's the people you send. You don't send the people who are loosely connected to the church, focused on their own ministry, their own efforts. You look at the kind of service they have invested in the church and you say, we want to send our best. Apollos was one of the best. Zenos, known in the community, even as a lawyer, he's one of the best. Send him. You find those whose lives have been saturated by gospel-centered service and you send them out. And we support them. In fact, I think that's a, a, a mandate that we as a local church would find the financial ability to support them in such a way that they did not have need to be focused on other things so that their fruitfulness can be felt for the sake of the gospel. It should be, can I just give a practical statement here, and it's not about my salary, it's not about what I get. I'm talking about people in the future that we send out. We should be thinking in a budgetary way that we should not be surprised if the vast majority or more of our budget is being spent on supporting those who have proven themselves with gospel-centered service in our midst to make sure that they can do that in other places. You say, well, how are we getting the benefit from that if we're spending a lot of money on people we're sending out? What benefit are you looking for? We're about the kingdom. We're not about just hoarding everything here. We're going to be sending people you look at their life and say they're devoted to the local church and to a kind of service that wants to see the gospel flourish. When we're thinking about people that we're going to support, I want to see where's the local church in their life. And I want to say, do they have a track record of known gospel-centered service so that our congregation has absolute confidence? Let's look at a third guideline to frame our thinking around how to support people we'll partner with third partner with those who are defined by gospel-centered results 
those who are defined by gospel-centered results. Verse 14, our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Who must engage in good deeds? Our people. Now, this verse may be directly tied to the idea of meeting the needs of the missionaries who are actually being sent out in verse 13. This would be fascinating. Then those good deeds that are described in verse 14 might include supporting the physical, tangible needs of those who are preaching the gospel and being sent out. But notice, Titus is not to leave the island of Crete until the churches are exhorted to make sure that all of the people in these churches are devoting themselves to good deeds. Our people, the Christians in the churches that we are serving on the island of Crete must learn to engage. They must engage other people with good deeds. That means they are defined by these good deeds. This is an emphatic call to focus the church's aim on something specific. Ministry-related activities. What kind of ministry-related activities do you think he has in mind here? Well, this shouldn't surprise us. Actually, the word good deeds is found throughout the book of Titus. You know what kind of good deeds he's talking about? What kind of good deeds should we engage in Well, if you're an elder in the church, chapter one says, here's the kinds of good deeds you should be engaged in. What should it be? Are you devoted to your wife? Are you developing your children in a gospel respectful way? Those are good deeds. You're not arrogant, quick-tempered, drunk, violent, greedy for gain. Well, that's a character, right? What kind of characters, what's produced from that kind of character? Actions. Actions. What deeds do they do because of their character? They're hospitable. They love what is good. They're self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. Those are the good deeds you look for. Do they hold firm the trustworthy word as taught? They're giving instruction in sound doctrine, rebuking those who contradict that sound doctrine. So what you're looking for in elders What good deeds? A kind of character that produces what's consistent with salvation. Not just do they do good ministry projects. Do they put together a good program? Do they live gospel kinds of lives? But it's not just elders. What kind of good deeds are members supposed to do? You remember chapter 2? Verse two, they should be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Those are the kinds of good deeds we're wanting all of our people to engage in. They're reverent in their behavior, not slanderers, not enslaved to wine. They're teaching what is good. They're training the younger women to love their husbands and children. They're being self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their husbands. Young men are showing integrity and dignity in their teaching, their sound in speech. Those who are slaves on that island are to be submissive to their masters in everything, to rulers and authorities, all of us are to be submissive to. 
obedient, speaking evil of no one, avoiding quarreling, gentle, showing perfect courtesy towards everyone, a foolish, avoiding foolish controversies, dissensions, and quarrels. That's a lot of good deeds being done, right? So when you're examining people that you're going to support, what are you looking for? They're really, they're really good communicators. They, they get everybody involved. They're kind to every. I, I'm, I'm looking for a kind of gospel-centered life that constantly lives their life because they are affectionate for the gospel of Christ. It defines them. It defines them. When you look at them, they're ready to help, not just because they want to jump on board the program, but because Christ defines everything about them. You look at the things they avoid, you look at the things they're given to, it's because the gospel defines them and it's clear in their life. You look at the kind of results they want to produce and those results look a lot like the kind of life they live. When you're driven by the gospel personally, what are you trying to produce in others? The same thing. The life you live is defined by the gospel and your good deeds, it produces fruit that is eternal, not just fruit that can be measured. Our people must learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. They need to be productive. They need to have results. They must not be unfruitful. They need to produce something. What is that? A gospel kind of life. Fruit that lasts. Listen, we can give a lot of time and attention to philanthropic tasks. Some of those might be very good and they might open doors for gospel ministry. But the good deeds we're focused on is not just philanthropy. It's far, far more than that. When you meet pressing needs, where is the gospel in how you're meeting those needs? In why you're meeting those needs? That's what we're looking for. That should be the aim of every believer in Christ. Not just international missionaries, not just preachers and teachers. But can I say this to if the Lord opens up the opportunity for us <clears throat> as a congregation to plant another church in this area or in any other area of the country or the world, we might not just send some of our interns and staff members. What if we came to some of you and we said, could you go to, because of the life that you lead, and the kind of fruit that you produce in your life, it is so rich with gospel fruit, we, would, we want you to prayerfully consider going to help with this. Would you be open to that? I mean, Titus wasn't supposed to leave this island until he had talked to our people, which is not just the ministry people who are going to do this for a living, it's the members of the church, what kind of life will we lead? What kind of fruit do we produce? 
So if we were going to partner with another organization to do church planting or mission sending, I want to ask that question, what kind of fruit are they producing? Would it match with what we're trying to produce? Would it match with what we're trying to do? Do our hearts beat together in that gospel kind of ministry? I pray as a congregation we're aiming for the kind of results that are tied to Christ, his message. They produce what his message calls for, which is eternally lasting fruit. I've had a number of people ask me, what do you think about the the so-called revival going on at Asbury and other campuses? I'm like, I don't know, I'm not there. Well, what do you think about it? I don't know, I'm not there. I, I want to know what's it producing. I don't know. Time will tell. Well, they've got this and this and there's all kinds of, yeah, every, every time in every part of history when we've seen, you know, ecstatic movements like this that happen, there are good things and there are things that we'd look at that say, no, that's not good either. Jonathan Edwards, if you go back and read his, his writings on this subject, I'd say he was a good guy, biblically speaking saw remarkable work done in his day that probably would make a lot of us nervous. I mean, there were people shrieking in his sermons out of fear of the wrath of God. I haven't seen that here yet, nor do I preach as good as he does. When that wasn't always done in his ministry, there was a particular move of God. And even he would say, hey, there's excesses in this. There are people who try to take advantage of it. They try to read themselves into it and they have ulterior motives. So what's going on? I don't know. What's the, what's the fruit? What's the result? Is it producing the kinds of lives that you see in Titus 1, 2, and 3? The kind of character, the kind of fruit that doesn't last, that will last forever, that doesn't fade away just when times get tough and it's not so ecstatic? So I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm not even responsible to have to know what's going on in Asbury. I'll leave that to the folks who have nothing better to do than read the internet all day. There's a lot more that needs to be done here. What's the fruit going on here? What kind of fruit is it? That's what we're looking for. Our people can't be unfruitful. They have to produce something. What are they producing? I think it's helpful to look at this in evaluating the sorts of results that people who want our partnership are pursuing. And even to ask ourselves, what results are we seeing? So in thinking about partnering, sending, receiving, giving money towards, I want to know where's the local church? I want to see, is the gospel central in their kind of service? And I want to see, is it is that ministry, are these people producing fruit that the Bible would define as eternal kinds of fruit? Last, number four. Partner with those who are united by gospel-centered love. Partner with those who are united by gospel-centered love. Verse 15, all who are with me greet you. Why would they be with Paul? Because of his ministry. Greet those, and notice this phrase, who love us in the faith. Don't miss that last phrase. Greet those who love us. You could stop right there and you'd say, "Uh, he just likes celebrity status. 
Greet all the people who are affirming to us. All the people who are naysayers, don't greet them. No, greet those who love us because of Christianity, because of the gospel, in the Christian faith. Because of their hope in in God, greet them who love us in the faith. They have affection and camaraderie for us. The word is philos. It's not agape. It means to have a family kind of affection, a brotherly affection, a camaraderie with us because the faith has united our hearts together. Greeting does not just simply mean hug them, though it includes that, but it means embrace them for who they are. Greet them as if you're affirming them because of their faith. That's the idea. I mean, Paul can't even say hello without being gospel-centered, can he? I mean, it just saturates everything about him. Greet those who love us in the faith. There's a lot of expressions of kindness that can be shown to people. It's a lot of great ways to to show affection and greet one another on the Lord's day. What would make our affection for each other obvious because of the gospel? And think about those who are beyond us, who we're wanting to affirm in our own greeting as being partners in the faith. What would our greeting to them communicate about our devotion to the gospel and our being defined by the faith? It's really the question that's being asked here. We should have a unique, affectionate camaraderie, a tangible, family-like love that is invested in and toward those who share our relationship in Christ. That's hard to define. Not everybody outside us crosses their theological T's at the same height we do. Have you noticed that? Some of them get it wrong. Or they get it differently. Does that mean they're outside the faith? We have to be careful with that. There's a lot of things going on in our world and, and I'm not dismissive of theological accuracy. I think if you've known me very well, you know that's important to me. I don't want to dismiss that at all. Those who love us in the faith means more than just love us. There's something there that defines that love and that has to be some kind of robust Christianity. We're not looking for as thin as we can get. But we want a scripturally defined love. Not just a convenient love. Not just a personal preference kind of love. Not just... A kind of love that's devoted to only those who say their eschatological phrases the same way we do. So our love has to be broad in some senses, not just restricted. But it must be something more than just a feeling too. It has to be defined by the faith. I mean, I, I think about this. I've, I've found some ministry partners in the world who express their love of Jesus without the Bible. That's not really what I'm looking for. Or they, they come up with what they think will resonate with the culture. If I can resonate, I can reach. Now, I, we need to resonate with the Bible first because that's what actually reaches, right? The scriptures reach. 
So I'm looking for that. And I want a thicker, not a thinner approach to that. So when I affirm them and I greet them as if my affirmation rests on them, it's because of the faith. Does that make sense? So if the God of the Bible expressed through the Jesus of Scripture is optional in their ministry, it's probably not one that we're going to put our congregational stamp on. It's hard to know that all the time. We'll probably, this will shock you, we might make mistakes on this. You, you might hear us come up sometime and say, hey, uh, maybe we shouldn't have joined arms with this one. Should have looked a little closer. Time shows us a little more over time and you might then think, well, what kind of, a, you know, what kind of evaluation do you guys have? Do you have any discernment up there? You know, we might make mistakes, but we want to be intentional in it. It'd be good if I could come up with a list, wouldn't it? Here's who we're going to partner with and here's who we're not going to partner with. That list would always be ebbing and flowing and it would be virtually impossible to come up with. But could we come up with a framework? I think that's a way to think through this conclusion of Paul's letter. Everything in this letter has been about being gospel-centered. So what about the people that we're sending out, we're receiving in, we're partnering with, we're affirming What's the grid by which we would think about how to partner with them? Do they promote the local church? Is it key, central, part of their DNA? Are they actually promoting the gospel of Jesus and their service is all about the gospel? Do the results that they're producing and urging, are they consistent with the gospel message of Jesus Christ? It's not just professions of faith, but it's a kind of discipleship in Jesus that resonates with the whole of the New Testament. Are we promoting a gospel definition of love or just a personal preference kind of love? We have to think through that in practical ways, in personal ways, in intentional ways. And let me just push it one step further on this before we finish. What we're talking about is how do we partner as a whole congregation collectively? Not just things that you might do individually. There are many individual expressions that you might involve yourself in. So for example, I don't think that our church is called to link ourselves as ministry partners with the local government or the state government or the national government. I would never say we are ministry partners with our government. But I think it could be faithful to see someone in our church believe they are called to serve in the political arena. And we're not sending them out as a church and paying their way and supporting them in a salary way to go do that work. That's something they feel called to do and we're gonna support them in prayer. We're gonna, in accountability as a congregation. But we're not partnering with the government, but they might choose to do that. The mission of our church is magnifying God by making disciples of Jesus. I think that's what the Bible's about. We didn't get to make that up. So we're going to try to streamline our resources and our activities and our partnerships within a frame that 
works toward that singular purpose of magnifying God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. So if there's a Christian ministry out there where it's optional to make disciples as the core of their being, we're going to let them do that on their own because we got to streamline what we're doing to maximize discipleship because that's what the whole church is asked to do. But some of you might serve in some of those ministries individually. You might want to assist in building a house for the needy, even though it's not the local church's collective responsibility to support the organization that you choose to work with. You may want to use your medical expertise in assisting the needy in a foreign country, but it's not the local church's mission to alleviate all tooth decay or medical need. You might find an opportunity to serve the needy neighborhoods and neighbors as you live in and work in the inner city, but it's not the local church's responsibility to collectively eliminate poverty or social need. Those might be places where we can enter in with gospel opportunities, but it's the gospel that defines us, not the need that defines us. In all you do as an individual, in whatever you do, you're still going to have to ask yourself the question, how important is the local church? Is my service defined by the gospel? Am I producing gospel kinds of fruit? Is this really an affirmation because of a gospel-defined love? You have to think through that. Our church has to think through that collectively. How are you going to know if our life and our service and our church are gospel-centered within the work that we're doing? Well, you'll know when what we say we believe is actually defining how we live. Well, what we say about the gospel, that Jesus is the only Savior, that defines you. That God is a gracious God who saves us despite ourselves and has mercy on us. When that kind of mercy and grace defines you because of Christ, you're seeing the results. Who are we going to partner with? Maybe this serves as some kind of a framework for us because there's a lot of ministry to do in our world today. We are going to partner with other people outside of our church. We are going to try to think as broadly as the Lord would have us think, as open and across the globe as we can possibly think, and that the Lord would ordain in his providence for us to be involved in. But we need to have some guidelines. And those are the basic guidelines of which we'll begin to think through it. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we think through these things together. We're grateful for what you've done in our midst already. We think back over the history of our church in all the things that we've been involved in, some wonderful and some that we've had to rethink. We pray that we do so, trying to maximize the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we know the world The world is lost. This world needs to see the accurate portrait of the Savior. This world needs the answers that flow from divine revelation. They don't even know that they need these things. This world is thirsting for the supremacy of Jesus Christ and they would never ever think of it in those terms. And you have mandated that we share that with them. And you have called people to yourself from every walk of life all over the world 
with a variety of expertise and your providence has been so amazing to see who you bring to yourself so that you can spread the work of the gospel across the world. Help us to pay attention to that but also help us to develop the kind of local church ministry that propagates the truth of the gospel. Not ancillary issues, not mere philanthropy, but true gospel-centered work. We pray for wisdom. I pray you give our elders wisdom. I pray our congregation is producing lives that affirm the gospel and people whose discernment is driven by your mercy and compassion through Jesus as our only Savior. Lord, do a work among us that when we look back on it, we can say there was true revival because we see the evidence of the Holy Spirit through lives that have been radically changed and they have come in contact with the true Savior. And they've been transformed from the inside out. I pray you would bring about a great transformational change in our city, in our region, using us across the world. Because you're producing a people who look like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us an appetite for that and a hunger and a consistency with kindness and generosity and